This week on the show, we talk and show you a little bit about how certifying an operating system Unix is uh, difficult to making it compliant to the actual name Unix, 2021's FreeBSD Foundation Impact Report, Netflix, Disney, and other white wine content on FreeBSD. We show you with a tutorial how to do that. File hashes updated on NetBSD 8.1 and why you shouldn't worry. Playing with CDRWs on FreeBSD, reminiscing about the old times when disks were all the rage. Why process substitution is a late feature in Unix shells and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 443, Certified Unix Compliant, recorded on the 9th of February 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by the Tarsnap folks. Go to tarsnap.com bsdnow to find the online backup for the truly paranoids that you really need. And the BSD Now Patreon is also up for a while now on patreon.com bsdnow, where you can support this show or jump the queue in our Q&A section or just have this episode without any ads in there. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. We have prepared and compiled and recompiled another episode for you. Because compiling, compiling twice is sometimes better than once. <laughs> yeah, that, that helps. <laughs> Especially when dealing with LaTeX. Um, no. uh, headlines this week start with what goes into making an OS to be Unix compliant certified, you wonder. Okay, and so first up, we have uh, this Quora question, and it was answered by Terry Lambert. And it has the credentials of being the Apple Core OS kernel team technical lead on several projects over eight oh, years. Oh, okay. Um, and this answer was on the 15th of January, 2022. So it was quite a recent one as well. Um, and so what goes into making an OS to be Unix compliant certified? A lot. I was the tech lead at Apple for making uh, Mac OS X pass Unix certification. I've just realized that I, can't, I don't know if it's X or 10 and someone's going to tell us off. Um, and it was done to get Apple out of a $200 million lawsuit filed by the Open Group for use of the Unix TM trademark in advertising. The lawsuit was filed because the owner of macOS server kept putting Unix on the website and all the other marketing collateral for the server product. The options were make macOS X actually Unix to defang the lawsuit. This would also make the open group industry relevant when at the time they were losing a lot of that to Linux's increasing popularity, which is why this was an option on the table at all. Two, buy the open group for about a billion dollars so that Apple could freely use the trademark to describe a power cord if they wanted to. This would not get them out of the existing contractual obligations to with some microsystems, IBM and others, who had already licensed the use of the trademark, however. I was asked if I could get if I could lead a team to do number one. I said Yes, under the condition that I could use the compliance project as a hammer to force other parts of the organization to make changes in their own code base and that I could play it rather loose with commit rules regarding what it said in the bugs database for a given code change and what the given code change actually did in addition to what it said in the bugs database. I was given the go. And so we ran the compliance test suite against the existing macOS source base and it immediately errored out because of the header files. Ed, Moy, and I made a two-line change that moved a type definition from standardio.h to where it was supposed to be instead. One line of change in standardio.h and another in the file the type was actually supposed to be located in. And then we ran the tests again. And one of the header file errors in the tests went away. 
So we did a world build where everything that is in Mac OS X, including iTunes, got rebuilt. That essentially one line change broke 152 for memory. The number sticks out, but it might have been 137 projects to build, including iTunes. So Ed and I went through and fixed every single one of those projects to build with the change or without the change. And we did another world build and everything built. Yes, we had access to all of Apple's source code at that point in the game. And so we submitted high priority bug fixes to the project, some of which downgraded the priority immediately and some of which they simply fixed since we had provided them with the patch already. And then the VP of engineering, Bertrand uh, Surlay, re-escalated the priority on the ones that had been downgraded and we committed the header file changes. At this point, we had to go back and reassess the feasibility of the whole project. Ed and I felt it was doable in the timeframe given the preconditions I had already placed on the project. Ed was willing to say, uh, anything directly. I said yes, putting my job on the line, and we were given the go. It escalated up to Steve. We were given the go. It was, after all, either Apple, uh, either saving Apple a billion dollars or 200 million plus revamping all of the macOS server marketing collateral, after all. We were promised one tenth of the 200 million or 20 million in stock on completion. 10 million to me, 5 million to Ed, and 5 million to Karen Kripes, who was looking for a home in Mac OS, Mac OS X development. I, I knew was an amazing engineer and could be roped into being technical liaison and periodic clicking off the text, tests and complaining to Ed and I about things not passing. I got 10 million because it was my it was going to be my job on the line and potentially my ability to work in the industry at a high level ever again in the future. Also, the tech lead has to fix anything no one else fixes or no one else can fix because they are the DRI, directly responsible individual. I wasn't just the tech lead, I was the de facto project manager. I wore a lot of hats. This was gonna be a long slog. I'd estimated a year for a team of five individuals, the three musketeers, not a misspelling, two contractors, one for mostly user space code, that was Len Latazani, and one for full-time test automation and bug filing, uh, Jamie Delagadillo, I'm sorry, uh, who also contributed patches where possible. We had two more temporary contractors, one for tools compliance and one for man pages, and then anyone we could rope in from elsewhere in Apple on a case-by-case -case basis for a short term. This was mostly to make sure they were invested in the project. We didn't actually need them to write code. Our first red letter day was when all the header files passed testing so that the other tests in the test suite could start running. We actually committed all the header file changes to the rest of macOS by that time. The headers were standards compliant by the time Tiger shipped. This broke the heck out of Code Warrior. I fully intended to fix that, but was never given the opportunity. And Code Warrior was more or less collateral damage. But it was a red letter day when the header file tests began passing. We celebrated by going to IL6, the informal name for BJ's restaurant, just off the Apple campus. As far as the rest of Apple was concerned, we had just fixed uh, just closed fix the header files bug, which encompassed a lot of other bugs that were for individual header files. We spent three months doing this. I promised a year. How was I going to hit the one year estimate? I knew that going in, forcing the header file changes and the project changes associated with them would be the biggest part of the project. Once we could run the other tests, there was a lot of low hanging fruit to fix in other areas. That took about two months playing fast and loose with the commit rules, and we more made short work of them. Ed did most of the lib system, libc and other libraries rolled into one with the assistance of me in moving things out of the namespace. This is why there are header files in slash user include sys that begin with an underscore, for example. 
while waiting on submissions, you could do other work in parallel, and we did. After the low-hanging fruit, there was a lot of other work, like rewriting the signal system in the kernel, which was not that low-hanging. By this time, we'd roped in Umesh. I won't give his last name because he didn't want us touching his pthreads code. He wanted to make changes there anyway, and having the project as a means of hammering those changes through pleased him greatly. He brought begrudgingly buy-in from Mike Smith. Yes, that Mike Smith. I don't know this Mike Smith. By having him rewrite the file locking code, I'm the one who pushed it out of individual file system and into the layer above so that it was one common code implementation. But Mike was the one who made it work. We finally brought Joe Sokol off, bought Joe Sokol off by asking questions about the trap path and the surrounding signal stack frame saves. Of these, however, it was Umesh who was the most helpful in our meeting our deadline. Eventually, we had everything working and passing with tests. We were ready to pull the trigger. And then we pulled in the Intel code changes and crapped all over everything because we were told to wait two weeks. It was a mess. And so I spent a three-day bender, not a drinking bender, a code bender, a three-day bender, reintegrating all of our patches on the conformance branch into the post-Intel kernel code. By this time, I pretty much knew every one of the 13 million lines of kernel code in the macOS kernel, and we were back to passing the tests. And then we were told we could not integrate for Tiger, that we would miss our self-imposed deadline because it was too much change at once with Intel changes. Tiger dragged on for another six months before release with week-for-week -week slips because of Intel-specific bugs, not in the kernel. We could have, in other words, easily shipped in Tiger and hit our self-imposed deadline. If I was asked to do the same thing for Linux, it would likely take five years and two dozen people. Linux is pretty balkanized, has a lot of kingdom building, and you have to pee on everything to make it smell like Linux. <laughs> I could do the same in FreeBSD in about a year and a half with a dozen co-conspirators to run changes through. A lot of the work could happen in the porch tree. All told, probably 4% of the 6% of the macOS kernel that I wrote, it came from the Unix conformance changes. IT, it came from committing massive signal changes and attributing them to a simple signal bug resulting in a kernel crash in the radar bug database. A lot of the things added to libc header files and libc itself had similar fibs in radar. We had a lot of gratitude in the open source community, particularly for our fixes to make bash pass tests. You have absolutely no idea how much Apple contributed to open source community as part of this project because it was a secret project. At least to the people outside Apple, so we didn't advertise the fact. But I expect we contributed about 2 million lines of code to hundreds of open source projects over the course of that year. A lot of gratitude, but it wasn't collective, and so Apple still faulted for using open source code but never contributing back. We fixed at least 15 major GCC bugs, for example. You have no idea. So overall, it's a pretty big project to get compliance. And that before all the things that Karen did on the self-certification contracts, getting test exemption-based uh, on exemption for OSF slash one mock and so on. It was indeed a long slog. Oh yeah, that probably not many people knew before this posting. Yeah, I had no idea it was it was so much work because it was used as a selling point that it was Unix certified. And like but each of these, wasn't. <laughs> and like each of these open source projects could have like, yeah, we don't bother for this bug report, and it could have delayed the project. We're not merging that. <laughs> and it's like, wow, they have to do this all in secrecy. Uh, okay, well, well. Uh, a bit more uh, on the transparent side of things. We this next article is about the 2021 FreeBSD Foundation impact report. Like what the foundation could achieve in 2021 mostly with the donations that people did to the foundation so thanks for that 
and the report is uh, in the format of a web uh, scrollable content similar to the FreeBSD journal and so we look at a couple of pages there so you find the link of course in our show notes and they show various uh, pages from the report that you can scroll through and the first page is of course the opening uh thanking the community and the sponsors or all the people who donated to the Free Foundation that made this possible to support the FreeBSD projects and the foundation as well. So uh, over 21 years, they say, the foundation has been here to support the FreeBSD project and community by stepping in to fill critical needs in order to improve FreeBSD and make it the performance, secure, and reliable operating system folks depend on. As someone who has been with the foundation for over 16 years now, this is the... FreeBSD uh, Foundation's executive director message. Um, there lost the line here. Uh, yeah, I've seen it grow from having no employees to a staff of 11. We started out focusing on sponsoring just a few conferences and software development projects. And I'm very proud to say that this year we've done more to support FreeBSD than ever before. We've grown to having a small staff who can step in to advocate for the project, quickly fix bugs, review changes, and develop improvements to make FreeBSD not only the best operating system available, but the best open source community to be involved with. Although the past year has been challenging with travel restrictions, folks working from home, and the feeling of isolation, thankfully we saw the community come together to support each other through more online engagement, whether supporting each other technically or on a personal level. The support they see folks give each other over mailing lists, social media, and other formats makes them believe that there's a lot of good in this world and they're proud to be part of this community. So that's a nice introduction letter. There's more, but we leave that to you. The next page then lists a message from uh, the, well, a list of the board of the directors, which I'm also part of here in the uh, vice president role at the moment. So these are the folks behind the FreeBSD Foundation and uh, the board of directors who oversees the foundation's activities and makes sure uh, that the uh, foundation as a, a legal entity works properly. Then they support or feature the FreeBSD Foundation staff, who's doing what and what kind of areas you might encounter them, like marketing or uh, technical uh, things or project management. So these are some of the folks you uh, may have interacted with already. Then they list the achievements in 2021. And they say that the foundation team worked diligently to grow and support the FreeBSD project over the past year. In fact, 2021 turned out to be one of our most productive years to date. Check out a few of our biggest improvements, one of which is the increased number of software contributions. Uh, because in 2021, foundation staff and grant recipients made 1,468 sponsored commits to the source tree, which represents a growth over the 2021 uh, number of 70%. Thanks to the generous support of the community, we were able to add three full-time developers. So without your donations, we couldn't have done that. These roles allowed us to make more significant software contributions to FreeBSD, which overall improved the project and the code that you are using. Progre uh, progress here on the Wi-Fi work. Recognizing the importance of our Wi-Fi support, we funded Bjorn Zeep to integrate support for current generation Intel Wi-Fi devices by migrating to the dual licensed upstream driver shared with the Linux kernel. That's one of the most requested items so that we uh, now have someone working on that is probably well received. They also worked on developer tools improvements. Uh, they provided a multi-stage grants to more systems to provide FreeBSD with a modern debugger and bring LLDB closer to being a fully featured GDB replacement. In earlier episodes, we covered uh, some of the work they did and the blog posts the Moral Systems folks put out for that. 
Another thing is that they increased the FreeBSD advocacy efforts. The generous community also allowed us to bring us on a marketing coordinator, which provided the opportunity to increase our social media presence and more frequently update and create how-to guides. And this is helpful for new users uh, to get into the project or into the operating system and have an easier time uh, finding the information. They provide a spending breakdown uh, where this is uh, spent. That's probably interesting for the people who donated. And then there's uh, extra message on the fundraising for 2021 about like where the money uh, went to and what kind of things we did with that. We covered the, the fundraising goal in a previous episode and we weren't sure if they'd hit the 2021 goal of uh, $1.25 million and they actually exceeded it by about $30,000. Oh, wow. Excellent. Yeah. So the full numbers are in the report. Yeah, that's great to read. Like the, the, the last minute donations are always the ones that are unpredictable and it doesn't sometimes match the the last dates of the year or the last days of the year, but um, some of these checks are still processed and uh, are being put into towards the 2021 budget. Okay, and then there's more about advocacy and infrastructure support, but we leave this to you if you're interested in these particular areas. And we definitely thank everyone who donated to the FreeBSD Foundation in 2021. And while you're here, you might as well do a little bit one for your favorite operating system foundation. This could not only be the FreeBSD Foundation, but could also OpenBSD's Foundation or NetBSD's Foundation. All the money is being put into good use and you can read in these reports where and how they make an impact. Time to jump into our news roundup this week. We have found an article which somehow seemed to have disappeared, but luckily the uh, Wayback Machine helped us out here because we found it interesting enough to still cover it here. Uh, play Netflix, Disney, and other white wine. Is it called white wine? Uh, content on free white TV. Wine. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. This is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why, again, these things are uh, important to folks. That's why we cover it here. And we found it on the Wayback Machine. Luckily, they had it. And so we could read this tutorial for you. Not sure why it was pulled. Maybe it was slash dotted for some reason. Uh, I think their their web server is just offline when we're looking today. Uh, but it'll be back, back later. when we <laughs> record this episode yeah. here. But we have it here, and so we can read it to you. Uh, in this tutorial, we show you how to play Videvine content on FreeBSD. By default, it's not possible to watch Netflix or Disney Plus content on FreeBSD. The problem is that the Videvine browser plugin is not available on FreeBSD but they'll show a trick how to do it anyway. Since some FreeBSD versions, it's possible to install a Ubuntu-based system into the built-in Linux binary compatibility of FreeBSD. Ah, I think, I think where this is going. A member of the FreeBSD community has taken the trouble and created a simple installer script, and they provide a link for that as well. The Linux browser Linux-browser-installer is a born shell script that allows us to install the Linux versions of the Chrome, Brave, or Vivaldi browsers on FreeBSD in the Linux, uh, which is a Ubuntu focal change root. This allows us to use web services like Netflix, Prime Video, or Spotify that require Widevine. I'll walk you through each of these steps. First, we check out the repository from GitHub, which is just to get clone away. And next, we change to the new directory that was created then we execute the following command. It's a do as command, dot slash Linux dash browser dash installer, change root create, which will then run a change root installation of Ubuntu in a separate directory with the help of dbootstrap. And once it's complete, we can then install our favorite browser. The whole thing is then done with the command do as dot slash Linux browser dash installer, 
and install them and then either pick Chrome or Brave or Vivaldi, whichever you like best. And after the installation, we still have to activate and start the RC service. That's done using a do-as, or if you use, use sudo, same thing. Um, do-as service Ubuntu enable and do-as service Ubuntu start. So the first one adds it to rc.conf and the other one starts it right away. Occasionally, we also need to operate the packages in Ubuntu. We can do it like that. So you run do-as.linux-browser-installer, change root, and then upgrade, which does it for you. And that, folks, gives you the things that other users are used to you. Uh, to use and to watch uh, right away on your FreeBSD system. Very cool. Yeah, and so next up we have a, an update from uh, bsdsec.net and it starts uh, note, two files changed and Hass's signature is updated for NetBSD 8.1. And this comes from Martin at netbsd.org. Um, the NetBSD release engineering team recently received a notification that for the very old NetBSD 8.1 release, there is a checksum mismatch on our FTP server. This was not the effect of some hack, but an incomplete manual fixes to a manual mistake I made during the initial release of NetBSD 8.1. Here's what happened. On releases, two of our ISO images need uh, manual post-processing. There was a misunderstanding by me reading the RelEng release preparation recipe, and I accidentally... Um, there's a word missed, used the RC1 content of the images that made it, accidentally the RC1 content of the images made it into the official created 8.1 release ISO on June 1st, 2019. Some user found this later, early October, 2019, and I did a quick hackish fix and replaced the images with proper content. I also found the unclear to me description in the RelEng documents and improved it. For whatever reason, I did not finish the fix up at that time from dim memory, probably to the first full, fully verify the fix by booting the images on a Mac and probably forgetting about it later. Yesterday, we were noted that the MD5 and SHA512 sums for those two images, those two files were wrong. To make sure nothing bad happened, I recreated the two effective images from scratch in our internal trusted build environment. I replaced the files on the FTP server. I also recalled all torrent files for consistency as we have changed the torrent tooling and generated a new hash file, which has then been signed with the security officer PGP key. The only differences between the old and new hash files were as expected, NetBSD 8.1 image um, max68k.iso, uh, net 8.1 images macppc iso, the aliases in the NetBSD 8.1 iso, all the .torrent files, the PGP signature. We hope the improved internal recipe will avoid similar errors in the future and we'll try to more and ALS, ALS, uh, we'll try to more fully automate the process. Sorry if this caused any trouble, hoping to announce the start of the NetBSD 10 cycle really soon. Oh, okay. So no wrongdoing, no hacking, no interjecting of stuff in there. I don't think anybody checks the checksums of the files they download. <laughs> exactly right. If you're, if you're not burning it to a CD, there's... You're not worried about like wasting a CDR <laughs> by download. Speaking of CDRs, by the way, then this is tying nicely into the next article by Ruben Ert. Uh, he's blogging again and has been for a while now playing with CDRWs on FreeBSD. So you remember those? We They used to be big in its time. So he says, or writes, I didn't realize until just now that Jörg Schilling, the principal maintainer of CDR tools, died last year. Oh yeah, there was a big... Uh, yeah, 
turmoil on the uh, operating system. We covered it on the podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. We yeah, it was... They were kind of sad that he passed away and he seemed to be quite recognized in many circles. Uh, the CDR tools are pretty popular or were back in the day. So he's been writing about his software for ages, yet never got around to sending him a thank you. See, it's always too late then. Um, I consider this a wake-up call to appreciate people who make my life better. But I digress. I've been throwing away tons of old crap, some of which were ancient CDRs, which I imaged and saved as ISOs. My plan is to use a few CDRWs to boot and ferry data to my retro computers and for data center trips, and only burn stuff as I need it. It saves space and money and reduces the amount of time of one-time use plastic waste I'm generating. Oh yeah, that's thoughtful. The FreeBSD handbook already includes excellent CD burning instructions, so instead I'm going to explore how rewritable media works. As a quick refresher, you find out which device ID your burner is, then provide it an ISO. So CD record scan bus, which will tell you that you have a certain device that has a DVD RW burning capability and is a removable CD-ROM. Remember those? And then uh, his first attempt to burn an ISO onto an old CDRW failed uh, with the message from CD record, cannot get next writable address for invisible track. This means, oh, I remember these error messages <laughs> all too well. Um, yep, this capacity is unknown. So this hint was on line four. This disk was already full of data, so I have to blank it first. I hadn't had coffee all morning, so my mind was doing this already. <laughs> For those who didn't remember joys of optical media, there are many ways to blank, wipe, clear, or reformat a disk prior to writing new data. The quickest and most common is FAST, which only overwrites the table of contents and program memory area at the start of the disk, indicating the rest of the disk can be overwritten, not unlike a quick format on a hard drive. My anecdotal experience is that you can do this a few times before the error rate and failed burns become more common. So you run CD record again with the device of your uh, CDRW and then say blank equals fast. Probably overkill, he writes, but I'm, uh, I've got into the habit of always blanking all the disks each time. It takes the equivalent of writing an entire disk worth of data because that's what it's doing. But the end result is a nice clean disk for new data. So then you can run CD record again. Uh, so he provides the line to blank everything, blank equals all. Now we can record our ISO image again. I'm always interested to see the capabilities of drives I use, even if at best I understand half the features there. This is a simple SATA sim slimline unit in my primary FreeBSD tower. So this is the output showing what kind of things it supports. And uh, we used to be all uh, the details about this way back when, but nowadays it's kind of like yesterday's technology. Um, <laughs> Ruben writes, it's worth mentioning as well that CDRWs do typically take longer to burn than a CDR, then discounting the time, or even discounting the time taken to blank them. It's more than an acceptable compromise for him, but I, but I won't be surprised if the drive reports four for the drive speed. Ah, yes. I did briefly have a CD burner and CDRW media as a kit that worked at 8x the speed, but both these were long gone. This was a fun experiment. Now I have a reliable way to generate these disk images with a few CDRW. Oh, yes, we were so, oh, my CD burner is now 24 times faster than your 8X burner. And it's kind of like today, it's kind of what? <laughs> oh, by the way, Tom, did you have a key to secure your floppy disk box way back when? Um, no, I never had a floppy disk box, Benedict. 
<laughs> we used to have these like the keys on our keychain and oh never open the, the box when i'm not around and i need the key to open it and after a couple of days it was so tedious we just kept it open <laughs> <laughs> i mean i definitely had like uh I dealt with floppy disks at the real end of their life and all the floppy disks I had were very, very old. Uh, yeah. So my experience of floppy disks is like, oh, you wrote something to a floppy disk. Well, if you're very lucky, it'll come back off the floppy uh, disk. Yeah. And I always wondered why people used them, but it turns out like new floppy disks were actually okay. But like the, the very old ones my mother gave me from her work were not. <laughs> no, they were, they were dead. And then we discovered ARJ, where you could have these spanning volumes over multiples. Like if you have a big file that won't fit on a single uh, one, then you could, <laughs> oh, now insert the next one, and then the next one. And then you have an archive over like 10 of these. And the last one will always do, be do, broken. Do you, do you miss this, Benedict? No, not at all. Do, it's do, just reminiscing. I can send you some floppy disks. I have some. Like we used <laughs> to be so happy that CDRs were around after the floppy thingy and now we're like oh cdrs are so old now it's no one remembers those like i i definitely also dealt with like cdrs and cdrws like at the point they were really really cheap and so they were very unreliable because i i'm sure like there's loads of um uh, youtube videos by the youtuber technology connections talking about like cds and dvds yeah. and he really gave me the sense i mean i think he's about the same age as me the sense that when these things were new they were actually okay and reasonably reliable because you're paying like a hundred dollars a cd when they were new yeah they were our backup media uh, back then yeah i no, like i i definitely like could go through like three dvds trying to get something to boot yeah like, like oh i want to i want to boot ubuntu on my macbook oh no it takes four tries <laughs> and it's like oh we, we were so like painstakingly worried about which colors of uh these CDs, should I get the green ones or the, the black one and the, the blue <laughs> ones? And we were like so in those details. And nowadays we're like looking back and like, what did we care about back then? I mean, like there were some people in IRC this week talking about like, oh, this really old spinning drive I have. And I just replied like, you know, you know, NVMe storage is really cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. I mean, the NVMe sticks are cheaper than SSDs up to a certain size. Like, just buy this. Like, stop yeah. it. Stop. Stop worrying about the spinning rust. <laughs> you let it go. It's yeah. It's amazing how quickly we move on to new things and just do away with the old stuff. Yeah, well, the new stuff's better, Benedict. <laughs> I hear about these things, yeah, but I'm slow to adopt in some ways. <laughs> Not in all of them. <laughs> okay, uh, and and so last up, we have uh, a story from Chris Siebenman. Uh, why process substitution is a late feature in Unix shells. Uh, Chris writes, a while ago, I read Julia Evans' teaching by filling in knowledge gaps and hit the section using Evans' shell brackets cheat sheet as an example. One of the uses of brackets in Bash and other shells is process substitution, where you can use a redirection with a process instead of a file as an argument to commands. And then there's a command I, I don't want to read this out. Diff, uh, left angle bracket, um, in brackets, RPM-QA, uh, left angle bracket, in brackets, SSH server2, uh, quotes, uh, RPM-QA. Process substitution is a great little feature, and it feels very Unixy. Uh, sorry, that above command will diff the installed packages on the local machine and the remote server, I think. I've never used an RPM system. I don't know. Um, uh, process substitution is a great little feature and it feels very Unixy, but it took a surprisingly long time to appear in Unix and in shells. This is because it needed a crucial innovation, namely names in the file system for file descriptors. 
names that you can you can open, which is the open system call, um, to be connected to the file descriptor. Standard input, standard output, and so on are file descriptors, which from the view of Unix processes are small integers that refer to open files, pipes, network connections, and other things that fall inside the Unix IO model. File descriptors are specific to each process and are an API between processes and the kernel where the process tells the kernel that it wants to read from e.g. file descriptor zero and the kernel provides it whatever is there. Conventionally, Unix processes are started with three file descriptors already open, those being standard input, FD0, standard output, FD1, and standard error, FD2. However, you can start processes with more file descriptors already open and connected to something if you want to. Normal Unix programs don't expect to be passed any extra file descriptors, and there's no standard approach in Unix for telling them uh, that, hey, that they have been given extra file descriptors and they should read or write to them for some purpose. Instead, famously, Unix programs like diff expect it to be provided file names as arguments, and then they open the file name themselves. Some programs expect a special file name, often just a single dash, uh, to mean they should read from standard input or write to standard output. This is only a convention. There's no actual dash file name that you can open yourself. To implement process substitution, the shell needs to bridge these two different worlds. The process substitution will write to their standard output, but the overall command must be given file names as inputs. There are two ways to implement this. The efficient one that's been possible since the beginning of Unix, the inefficient one that's been possible since the beginning of Unix, and the efficient one that became possible later. The inefficient way is to write the output of the commands to a file, turning the whole thing into something like this. And basically, like they run the local RPM file and put it, RPM command put it in a file, SSH the remote machine and put that output in a file, diff the two files, delete the two temp files. So it's four steps, four commands instead of one. I believe that some Unix shells have implemented this, but it was never very popular for various reasons especially since this was back in the day when slash temp was generally a very slow hard disk. Once named FIFOs were available on Unices, you could use them instead of actual files, which improved the efficiency, but still had some issues. The best way is to have file system names for file descriptors so that when you open the file name, you're connected to the file descriptor. You may or may not get that file descriptor returned by the kernel from open. Then the shell can start the diff process with some extra file descriptors open that are the input sides of the pipes, and the two process substitution commands are writing their output to, and can provide file system names for those file descriptors as command line arguments to diff. Diff thinks it's operating on files, although odd ones since they're not seekable among other issues. Generally, it will be happy. Everything is automatically cleaned up when things exit, and it's about as efficient as you could ask for. The convention modern file system name for file descriptors is slash dev slash fd slash n, n for the file descriptor. I think every modern Unix has uh, slash dev slash fd of some sort, although the implementations vary. But coming up with the idea of slash dev slash fd, having it implemented and then having it spread widely enough that shells could reliably use it took a while. My impression is that process substitution in shells didn't start to be common until then, and even today isn't necessarily in wide use. Unfortunately, I'm not sure where slash dev slash ft was first invented and introduced. It's possible that it came from later versions of Research Unix since V10 version of RC apparently had this, and I can't imagine the Pell Labs people implementing it with named FIFOs. Slash dev slash FD took some Unix innovation after uh, V7, but that's for another entry. PS, considering that Bash apparently had a process substitution no later than 1994, my standards for a late shell feature may be uh, a bit off for many people. 
However, I think process substitution is still not in the shell section of the current POSIX, although named FIFOs are. Okay, that's cool. Interesting, yeah. It's almost touching on interesting history. I'd love to know when it appeared. I think someone should dig into that. And probably he will. You can do it, Benedict. On that. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure Chris will go into it. Just cover it in the future. (laughs) (laughs) We should mention the sponsor for this episode, which is Tarsnap. Tarsnap has been sponsoring this podcast uh, for a number of months and years now, even. Uh, And we are quite happy customers of Tarsnap because they provide the actual service we love because it's from a utility that we know, Tar, based on Tar. Tarsnap was built and it has the bells and whistles we need but nothing else it's very plain and simple it's giving us the online backups to be truly paranoid about because we could look into the source code for any kind of backdoors or things they're doing with our data in the meantime while we're not looking tarsnap is our backup solution okay um uh, speaking about digging into problems or uh, interesting unixy behaviors we have feedback and questions in this week's episode of course with the first one from marty about shell communities that you mentioned in episode 435 he writes i found the part about shell communities particularly interesting a shell community that went unmentioned was grex uh this is on cyberspace.org and i think it's particularly notable in the bsd context because it's been running on openbsd since 2004 after switching from a customized version of SunOS. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I, I came across this recently. I was looking for uh, a Unix BBS I could run similar to Bboard on uh, sdf.org. And I think Grex was the source of uh, a shell implementation of the BBS, like SDFs. Like, you end up with like loads of custom domains and stuff, so it can always be really hard to track where things are. But yeah, I mean, if you if you like public shell communities, you should go check it out, because there's lots. And you can see what other They're still around and popular. Uh-huh. Okay, next up, we have a question from Nate, uh, and they were, have titled this Helping Mike Out. Uh, Nate writes, love the show, folks. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Uh, in regard to Mike's feedback in episode 439, Ghost BSD in a VM, I used the following link to successfully set up a Ghost VM on my Fedora workstation running KVM QEMU. Uh, and it's at tips.graphica.com, and it is FreeBSD gnome on QEMU, but hopefully there'll be a link in the show notes. There is a section detailing the setup of the EVDev XRO driver and UTouch driver, both of which got the mouse pointer situation working for me on my setup. Hope that helps out, Mike. Thanks again for the great show. Thanks, Nate. That's really helpful. Yeah, especially since we couldn't answer it ourselves, we linked this to this other episode and we have a big community that can answer what we can't answer. Then the last one is another Tom. Hopefully it's not the same because... Not me. It was really <laughs> confusing to read. Or your own questions for your own show. I, I was I was trying to figure out if it was directed at me, like Tom. Oh, right. Convince people to switch. But no, it's from someone called Tom. <laughs> no, it's another Tom out there. Okay, and he writes. There's more than one. <laughs> Should Tom read the message from Tom? <laughs> okay, then I do it. Hi, BSD. Now I've been a listener for a while and really enjoy your podcast. Thanks for making this great podcast. Sure, you're welcome. Thanks uh, for the nice feedback, and we hope you. I like this episode. Um, My day job is Linux systems administrator for a web development company. In my free time, I contribute to the OpenBSD project. Oh, great. I'm a maintainer for a handful of ports. Wow, thank you. That's always appreciated, people taking care of the software on the operating systems. Uh, I have a pretty big question. 
what would be the best way to convince my directors at work that a switch to FreeBSD from Linux would be really beneficial for the web environment? What could I tout? ZFS? Jails? Perhaps using Capsicum for PHP, if that's even possible. We do a lot of agile developments or deployments. Deployments. Something like ZFS snapshots would be great to do to, yeah, prior to deployment in case anything fails. Yep, that's a use case. What are some things I can tell them what would really sell FreeBSD in a technical superior OS to Linux in this area? Many thanks and keep up the fantastic work on BSD now. Do you have suggestions, Benedict? Uh, I do. I really struggle. So <laughs> you could do an internal workshop and uh, for the people who are completely new to this operating system and just want to know what why you rant and rave about it. Um, so you could this way invite your colleagues for like maybe an hour or two and either online or in person, uh, depending on what your situation there is. Uh, and then you basically walk them through like a little screencast or you working on the system and this explaining these things like here's how I do a ZFS snapshot. Here I pull down files that I just accidentally deleted from the hidden.zfs directory, things like that, or how jails work. All these things that you find interesting, make them interesting this way to your colleagues and then find a non business critical server or project that you can try this on so let your colleagues get their feet wet with the system. And then slowly and steadily they warm up to the system and then that also gives management an idea of what this is about and that it's not, oh, super uh, critical or super dangerous. And over time, I think this is a good way to get uh, FreeBSD into an environment like this. Yeah, I, th I think it's, you have to be really careful. Um, people are really scared of change. People are really scared of learning things oh, yeah. again when they already know something. Um, and so being like, oh, we should move to this new thing because I think it's cool is a really difficult proposition to put up. Um, there are like some financial arguments you might be able to make, but there's also good counter arguments. Um, an argument you always have to worry about is like a sort of lack of FreeBSD qualified people, like people with experience. Um, and so while you might, there might, even if FreeBSD had tons of benefit, if you could never hire anyone, it, your, you know, your employers might be reluctant, but I would counter that by saying there's great support available from the community and also from companies that sell FreeBSD support. Well, they already have um, you so as the system administrators and they want to keep you yeah. since you know these things. So it could also be helping you. <laughs> That's also a reason to not do it though because yeah. then you're tied it's to one It's a job person. security thing. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, you could definitely talk about how um, FreeBSD small teams can manage big systems. You can point at WhatsApp as an argument, but I would try stealth moving some stuff over. Uh, sort of, I don't know if this is a, 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 like just in the mythos of, of like open source Unix, but... There's, I'm sure there's loads of stories of people running um, Linux and FreeBSD machines secretly at companies. No one knows about. Yeah, yeah. and then suddenly <laughs> the companies were like, "We don't want to pay Sun anymore," and the sysadmin was like, "Cool, well, we just have to move over. It already works. Like I made sure it all works because <laughs> I, I wanted to because it was fun." And that might be the way to try and convince them. Is yeah, I think a workshop is a good idea, but a workshop with your real infrastructure would be cool. Uh, and I'm sure you could spin up uh, like a simulacrum of your infrastructure. Uh, in your cloud provider if you use one or with some old machines and show that everything works on FreeBSD and it wasn't tons of work. And if it is tons of work to move over, then you found a pretty good argument why you need to maybe think again. But yeah, I think you could try this. But just shouting at people doesn't work. You have to be, you have to give them things they want to learn and, and be nice because 
it's scary doing new things and you exactly forget. yeah <laughs> you see the business context like if you demonstrate a lot of things that are not business relevant then they probably won't get the point but if you say oh let's look at this web project here that i have in a jail someone hacks into it but easily enough i can restore it to the way it was and the hacker can't even get out of this environment because jails are yeah, secure if you if you can get your current stuff running on freebsd and it looks the same and no one can tell the difference that's that's a great reason to be like yeah this is comparable but then if you can build something new which wouldn't be possible then you've got a great argument to be like it, it, there was no cost to switching here like it was easy to do and we got we do these new features we can't get elsewhere and it's it's really cool it's like that's a nice and especially path. yeah since especially this is a web environment this is pretty much operating system agnostic it doesn't care where it's running and if it's some linux specific stuff you could run this in a linux uh linux later environment yeah, right totally. it's fully compatible and and what i would say tom is uh if you make a sincere effort to try and do this whether or not you succeed this is a great talk to give at a conference oh yes uh, and this Very is the much. sort of story that i mean if someone had given this talk two years ago we'd be like watch this talk by tom but you've not done it yet so in two years okay. time we'll like to point tom at tom talking about this oh yeah that'd be great because there's other sysadmins out there who have exactly the same problem they're sitting in their companies wanting to get out the good word about the operating systems they like or the bsds in particular but they can't or they don't know how and hearing these stories from other sysadmins how they did that or from other folks and companies it's a lot better to see that they're not alone they know how they did it and they could use these strategies in their own company okay hopefully uh we have given you some interesting pointers. If you, our community and listeners, have additional stuff that you've tried and succeeded with, ideally, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll be happy to cover this and linking to this question again so that we have a nice experience out there uh, from you and learning a little bit uh, about the process. Very nice. Uh, so what else is left? Doesn't look like anything. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the end of the show, Benedict. Have, <laughs> we did it. We're done. We're done. <laughs> no dramatic reading of German poetry this time. Faust, um, next time, please. That's, yeah, I'm totally into that, yeah. Jo join our Patreon where you will get uh, exactly, Scots yeah. poetry and, and, and classical medieval German recitals. <laughs> we can make it happen. Uh, yeah, until then, uh, we have interesting news for you as next week's episode will come out as always. And uh, we happily welcome you back then. <laughs> is that is that the end yeah 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 benedict that was the last thing <laughs>